0: I don't know thanks for coming on and talking with me today
1: yeah thanks for inviting me jake i appreciate being here
0: so i came across your work with your book the rock warriors way which is a mental training course for rock climbing specifically but i do think that the principles apply broadly to many sports and many practices or crafts Um, is, is this course is it something that like did the book come out of a of a course like an in an in person teaching program that you had or an online course or is the book mostly just the course itself?
1: Uh, well, when you say online course, like I started this process in the mid '90s, so okay. there, <laughs> there's not really such a thing uh, as far as I know back then. But yeah. but it, it came the book came out of uh, teaching in person. Uh, I a little bit of background is in the in the early to mid '90s, I was doing a lot of research around uh, mental fitness in climbing. I was known for being able to deal with fear, and so I was investigating a way to create a program that could help other climbers see if I knew anything, and then be able to relate that and help other other climbers. and And so that led that research led me to uh, identifying seven core processes, you might say, that are mm-hmm. the chapters in my first book, The Rock Warrior's Way. Uh, and and yeah, so that was the beginning of it. And I, I knew that I needed to kind of test the material in the climbing medium mm-hmm. before I could write about it, like publish yeah. something. So from the mid 90s to about 2003, you know, I was doing that. Uh, and then I felt uh like I could publish it in a book
0: what what got you into climbing in the first place? it seems like yeah like its it, it seems like like more of a of a niche sport i'm I'm curious what what uh what attracted you to that just it just to begin with
1: certainly uh you know I'm an older generation obviously, and when I started climbing in nineteen seventy three I was a senior in high school and and climbing was really a fringe activity. It was not mm-hmm. really accepted very much outside of like some really prominent areas, like uh, you know Yosemite Valley in California, or in the, in the Front Range of Colorado, or maybe up in in New York. There are some traditional climbing areas that were well established. But uh, the thing that got me in, into climbing is. Uh, and I think there's something really curious for all your listeners is sometimes in our life we can feel lost. Mm-hmm. You know, we we in other words we uh, what typically happens in life is we think we're going in a certain direction, everything's going great and then you hit a wall. And and those walls are are really opportunities for re Uh, examining our lives to see if we're going the way we want to go or if there's a better opportunity. And for me, I thought I was going in the direction of music. You know, it was something that I was uh, studying a lot in in high school. Uh, But then I didn't make it into the Tennessee All-State Band and felt uh, disillusioned. But right in that moment, hitting that wall, I met some Fellow students that were into climbing, they took me climbing, and I had a new path then, and just really enjoyed it. You know, the first time I was exposed to it.
0: And is that something that that you continued on into college? Like, like were there any breaks, or was that something that like you find you found that in high school, and then you just kind of dedicated to that?
1: I, I did. At the time, I was, uh, I, was I was pretty athletically engaged, you know, in my childhood, mostly because I grew up on a kind of a a farm here in middle Tennessee. And uh, so when I got into climbing, I was also interested in other kinds of sports like caving and skydiving, scuba diving, things like that. Uh, But I, I soon realized that if I wanted to really become skilled and master something, I needed to focus. So yeah, I kind of looked at all of the sports that I was engaged in and and I said, you know, climbing is the thing that I really enjoy the most, so let me dedicate myself to that. And and there really haven't been any breaks uh, except for maybe when I was in the military. uh, I maybe climbed a couple of times a year uh, during when I was deployed to Korea. But outside of that, I mean, climbing was a unifying thread throughout my life.
0: Did you see many threads between the military and climbing, like, like many things that that were, were there things from the military that that you learned that made its way into this book and helped you with climbing?
1: Hmm. Not, not that I know of, but there are definitely uh, things that happen in, in both disciplines, like a, a simple example would be I was in the infantry in the military in the army. And in the the infantry's job, or part of their job, is to traverse the terrain on foot to an objective. Okay, so so we have to prepare and plan, you know, behind Mm friendly flint lines, you know, to make sure we know where we're going, what our plan is, and everything. And then we execute. You know, we go, but when we're going to the objective. We cycle between stopping and moving. Like we need to stop to check, make sure we're on the right path. You know, we might do a map check or whatever. Uh, We look and listen to, because we're probably in enemy territory. So we need to stop, look and listen, check our preparation, or plan, and then re-engage and move. And climbing is the same way. It's like we stop and move in climbing, where we stop to recover energy, to think about the next section, and then we re-engage, you know, for taking action on it. So there, there are definitely similarities there, but I didn't really reflect that much on my military experience in developing the material or writing that first book.
0: With that, that process that you guys had worked on in the military of being a little bit more deliberate in what you were doing and making sure you were on the right path, do you think that that's something that, that made you focus more on mental training and working smarter rather than harder? Because I it, it feels like with sports and really any kind of pursuit, it's, it's not that hard to just kind of work very hard at something without thinking about it, but it's, it's much harder, at least in my experience, to take a step back and make sure that I'm working smart. Do you think that, that planning process influenced the way that, that you were viewing, trying to accomplish things in climbing?
1: Uh, possibly, um, maybe, uh, maybe definitely in developing the material. I mean, uh, working smarter to me just means that you're actually going in a direction that's meaningful to you. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was before I started working and developing this material and teaching it. I was involved in another a family business, you know, selling tools, and. You know, I could do a lot about working smarter in that arena and really not end up where I want to be. So uh, working smarter, I think really, it's really important to know uh, what do you want? Like, where do you want to end up? Like, what kind of a goal, what kind of a life you want to create for yourself? Uh, And generally, that means something that inspires us, yeah, that creates a meaningful and a more purposeful existence so that... We feel like our life actually mattered while we are here on this earth, you know. So that's what I, I found, you know, with developing this material that I didn't have before.
0: In in working on the material, what made you go down the route of more of a mental training rather than, you know, there's a lot of programs and stuff that are based on physical training, but you, you took the more mental and philosophical route before moving into those things? Why was that?
1: Well, the, the easy answer is I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm terrible at uh, physical strength or even being interested in it. Like I'm, uh, my strength as a climber has never been about the hardest grade I could climb. Mm. It's been about the, the mental focus that I've been able to bring to, you know, the climbs that the climbing community kind of deemed as being more dangerous. Uh, So, in a sense, I was doing what was easiest for me uh, in going the route of developing mental training rather than physical training. It's easier because I was interested in it. I think when, when we're interested in something, curious about it, then it's a lot easier to deal with the stressors and the difficulties that are going to be, that we need to go through in order to develop something. And and so I was known for being able to be deal with fear. You know, I said, well, let me investigate that, and I found that that was really interesting to investigate.
0: Is that something that that you were good at, like before doing much research about it, or is it something that you've always been interested in in researching, and and you had been using those tools, or was it just kind of natural?
1: Well, that that's a really interesting question because um, I. I had like I said, I had this ability to deal with fear on these kind of routes that climbers thought were dangerous, mm-hmm. uh, but I didn't know why. Okay, so it wasn't that I. It was more innate. Like I just yeah, uh, I'm. I tend to be more intuitive. Like just uh, jump in and see if I can swim. Don't think it through, which has its strengths. So it also has its limitations. Yeah, uh, but it was really I was just. Uh, I was utilizing the the amount of natural ability I had. So I didn't really know why, but when I started digging into it, you know, I found out a lot more about what I was doing that was helpful that other people weren't. And then I also found out some things that I wasn't doing that I really wasn't as mentally fit as I thought I was. Mm-hmm. So that self-exploration, you know, that mental training can be can really bring up it can bring up a lot that you can see like, oh, I'm doing really well here, but it can also bring up a lot where it's really hard to look at because we're digging into our own psychology, our own being, our own strengths and limitations, and those limitations can be uh, pretty nasty sometimes.
0: So so it was something where you're looking into a strength that you had just out of curiosity as to why you had it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Um. Uh, How how did you go about the beginning process of that research? Like, where did you start with where to look? You you said in the book that you had consumed a lot of information. Yeah. What what paths did you go down in the beginning and why?
1: Certainly. uh, And why? Yeah. (laughs) The why is important. Um, Well, uh, this was like in the early 1990s, uh, which seems like a long time ago, and it is. But uh, I, was, uh, I was frustrated in the tool business that I was working in, okay? And, and I said, okay, I need to just see if I can just be a better entrepreneur. So I started researching, you know, that's, that's where all of the, like, a lot of information, you know, I, I, I read a lot of books, I took courses, I, I listened to audio programs on my commute, uh, trying to be a better entrepreneur. Uh, but an interesting thing happened is I kept hearing these authors saying that it was my responsibility to to find a life's work that was meaningful because that's the best way to serve other people and also have a meaningful life myself. Yeah. Uh, and so even though I, my initial intention was to be a better entrepreneur to sell tools, I realized that my real responsibility was something else, you know. Uh, and so w- when you have an awareness, it's like, you can't put it back in a box. You know? yeah, <laughs> you have to like yeah. say, okay, you know, what do I do with this now? And, and so that's when I realized, well, you know, climbing is the, the thing that I've loved all my life. Uh, there are certain things I love about climbing, you know, the movement of my body being outdoors, uh, the mental and physical dynamics and, uh, things that happen that you have to face when you're in a situation like that. And so I said, okay, let me see if I can create something here. And and like I said before, I, I chose mental training because um, it was interesting and I saw that uh, it was a strength that I had. So maybe that's where I could find an avenue to help others. Uh, but there's another aspect uh, to your question. And that is like, just, just because I'm interested in mental training, where do you start?
0: Yeah, because there's a lot.
1: Yeah, like, where do you start? Well, uh, I started uh, beyond just, uh, like, uh, listening to these programs and reading books and stuff. Uh, my younger brother, Mark, he, he was reading the Carlos Castaneda books. And, and he suggested that I read them also because he found them interesting and helpful and, and he thought that uh, I would also. Uh, and so, so I did, I started reading through those and uh, I know Carlos Cacaneda gets a lot of you know, negative press and for legitimate reasons. Uh, and there's also valuable information in there that we can glean when we really look at the, the dynamic going on between his, his mentor, Don Juan and Carlos. Uh, and so I found uh, the information really intriguing because Don Juan was talking a lot about uh, developing awareness and use use of attention, and mm-hmm. he did talk about what he called the Warrior's Way in those books.
0: So, so the, that that's what introduced you to the Warrior's Way and kind of took you down the warrior philosophy, like more of the martial arts realm. What what made you? or what, what led you to think that that, that that would be well suited for something like climbing?
1: Well, um, the, the thing is, I, throughout all of these years, I haven't really just looked at this in the context of climbing. I've, yeah. I've always known from the very beginning that I wanted to create a program for the general public, for the, the regular person. You know, uh, a philosophy, a mental training program that, you know, could help all of us just uh, live more meaningful, productive lives. Uh, So so it wasn't really that uh, I wanted to, like, find out how to create climbing warriors. It was more, there's a philosophy behind that. Like, we live our lives in a very specific way, you know, through the warrior's way
0: you mentioned musashi earlier earlier in the book um i i've i've read the book of five rings i i think he he's very interesting did did that kind of philosophy have a have a big influence on your approach with this
1: not so much um okay. i i read quite a bit of um uh, you know the, the samurai tradition uh miyamoto musashi um who's really in in my opinion, gets a little bit too much credit for being in. in the, he was really mentally fit, but uh, and effective as a, a fighter. Uh, but he was also a, a solo kind of person. Like he he didn't really yeah. find a way to connect with a wider community, uh, like some of the other uh, samurai teachers did, like uh, Yagumo Nanori. You know he had the. The life-giving sword school, you know, and and he was finding a way to blend, you know, Zen Buddhism with uh, swordsmanship to to create a program where uh, fighting was a last resort. You know, you mm, you, you yeah. developed your skills, your your physical and martial skills if you needed them, but the the first line of defense, you might say, would be you know dialogue engagement, you know, to try to find common ground
0: yeah so so you wanted to find more of a philosophy that was well suited towards spreading across groups of people instead of remaining solo and you know like musashi obviously was a swordsman you, you wanted to find something that had less of a violent first impulse
1: Ex- yeah exactly um yeah and that's and that's what uh don Juan's message to carlos was you know it's it, warrior's way was not about uh, killing and violence. Uh, and, and so it's part of it. Like if we think about our traditional soldiers, our warriors, you know, in combat, they have to fight, you know, to protect yeah. the com- uh, protect us. You know, so it's not that uh, fighting and violence isn't part of the warrior's way. It's just that it, um, well, for a soldier, it it's, might be the first choice, you know, because they're in a situation where they have to neutralize the enemy. But for in a broader context, the warrior's way is more about like how do we interact with the, the life challenges that we have, the stressors, in relationship, in in climbing, or in our careers, with or as a parent. You know, we can we can apply similar uh, similar skills, you know, similar mindsets, similar ways of being, you know, to be more effective in an overall life area.
0: So you had talked about before we started recording that, that um, it it would be worth clarifying like what is meant by the warrior's way because of this issue right here, where like, it can Mm -hmm. be easy to, to conflate it with um, leaning towards violence and things like that. So if, if, if you had to, had to like define it simply or or by a few principles, how, how would you, I guess, define the fundamentals of um, the warrior's way?
1: Yeah, so um, I think first it can be helpful to uh, share like how we define a warrior. Yeah, uh, and I just I just want to say that uh, this is not to uh, discount what traditional warriors are res- trained to do and responsible to do. You know, like uh, saying before, there's a time when that their responsibility is to fight and use violence to protect us. You know, that said. Uh, We define a a warrior in in this broader context as people who have made a conscious choice to live life courageously, exploring their inner and outer worlds so that when they die, they leave the world a better place because they have lived. Okay, so there's some important aspects there in that definition. First of all, uh, they're people, you know all genders, men and women, you know, it's like everybody. Like we we all can be, have a warrior mindset. Uh, uh, Make a conscious choice. Like we have to consciously make a choice to move in a certain direction so that we can really commit to it. And what are we committing to? We're committing to exploring our inner and outer world. It's like, we need we need to dig into our own psychology you know to understand ourselves better mm-hmm. we need to understand like who am i am i this flesh and bones am i my brain uh, am i my awareness that permeates all of this you know so we have to dig into an understanding of who we are and we come up against that, our ego which is very defensive and it uses all kinds of uh, sometimes helpful but also limiting behaviors to protect the self, like being reactive or blaming, making excuses, getting defensive, not wanting to look at our own stuff. So that inner journey is really an important, critical part of what it means to be a warrior and for mental training. Mental training is like going inside, right, and finding out what's in there. Mm-hmm. But we can't just dwell in here. We can't just sit in a cave and meditate, you know, the rest of our lives. We need to engage with the world, have experiences, and it's through that engagement that we actually can do that inner work because we're, we're engaging in relationships that causes stress uh, and so forth.
0: So it's, it's more about being like, like you said, courageous and facing things that are uncomfortable in in external experiences that you have, and that, that, that helps you learn more internally, which like is the, you know, the, the broad principle of doing things that are uncomfortable to, to train that ability to like turn you into the person who yeah. can continue to do that.
1: Yeah, and, exactly. Go ahead. And,
0: that, and that's, that's where that applies to some kind of a pursuit, like rock climbing, which can be very scary or, and difficult. It just like, um, uh, like as, as well as many other sports are really just kind of any pursuit that that's, that's the, the principle that, that you're driving in first is just being courageous and willing to go into those situations that might be uncomfortable.
1: Yes. And I mean, what you're, what you're pointing out is, uh, a, a, this is part of the conscious choice. Like, uh, if, if we pull one important element from the traditional warrior into this, and that is that uh, soldiers are trained to move toward the threat. Yeah. Okay, toward the stress, in other words. So here for us, we're making a conscious choice also to get out of our comfort zones and move in the direction of stress. We do it on a rock climb all the time, right? Mm -hmm. But we have all kinds of stressors in... All these other aspects of life that I've already mentioned, you know, relationships and so forth. Uh, But the 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 thing is that we need to make that choice and move in that direction, and then we need to want to be there. You know, a, a lot of people don't want to be in the stress. They're just their motivation is to get. They say, oh, I see the value of doing something hard and their their mindset is constantly about being on the other side of it. So it's staying in it. Instead of staying in it. And our life is about staying in it. You know, so that... Well, first of all, we're going to be more effective with our attention, but we're also going to enjoy the process more and we're going to learn more if we're present for what we're doing along the way.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So... So a lot of it has to do with motivation. And, and so motivation, uh, it's a pretty, can be a kind of a complex uh, topic, but there's some simplicity around it. Like what I've found in, in teaching our courses is that uh, climbers come into you know, our courses and they want to get over the fear of falling, for example. And there we go, get over the fear of falling. You know, how they say that reveals their motivation okay and so we say well um i can't help you get over your fear of falling but i can help you diminish it okay and that's a different way of understanding it you know so we we say we're going to teach you tools exactly what you need to do to incrementally engage falling practice so that you can diminish your fear and actually be present and enjoy it yeah you know, and that requires a goal. So we do need achievement motivation. I want to diminish my fear of falling, but then learning-based motivation, where we want to be along the journey, to, uh, present for it, so we can learn and enjoy it, uh, leading in the direction that's meaningful to us.
0: That uh, adopting that warrior's mentality and being comfortable in difficult situations is—is that—is that shifting? the the motivation from something more extrinsic, like the achievement of like, like you said, something on the other side of the comfort and you're shifting that instead to intrinsic motivation, which is just enjoying the comfort. And the the idea being that that over time, that's a more sustainable form of motivation that would allow you to achieve more and get better in the pursuit rather than just like not enjoying the difficulty of it, which is what will actually make you progress.
1: Uh, Yeah, basically, uh, there's some nuance to it where uh, someone that is extrinsically motivated, like, basically, I'm motivated by something outside of myself, like I want Uh to be able to succeed on this climbing grade or this particular climb, Uh, I want to achieve this goal. Uh, It can be very motivating. It can be very effective, you know, very productive. Uh it's just that we hate the journey because we want to be at the goal all the time. And we're fighting against the stress instead of fighting with it, so to speak. So yeah. it's not a matter of choosing between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. We utilize it's a it's more a matter of when do we utilize each and we utilize extrinsic motivation before we take action like say okay this is a goal that's meaningful to me that i want to accomplish it's this extrinsic thing outside of myself now when i step on that rock and start climbing engaging in the stress in other words taking action i need to shift toward a more intrinsic learning based motivation so they can yeah. work in parallel you know just a matter of when you know we utilize each
0: you in in the beginning in the book you talk about the importance of a, a level of awareness just generally, and you you talk about the issues of the ego that a lot of us are kind of overwhelmed by before we become aware of it, and that that can lead to various beliefs and ideas and identities that we adopt that may not be very beneficial to us. And you, you t- you're talking about this way of stepping away from that and being able to observe and creating some distance between some of those ideas. Do you, do you have, you, you recommend some exercises at the end of the book, do you have many specific practices that, that you like for that, like seated meditation, something like walking, meditation, journaling, does it matter that much? Or is it more just whatever works for you that allows you to get in that state where you're paying more attention to? these ideas and emotions that you don't have to attach to in the way that, that you habitually have been.
1: Yeah. Great question. Um, a few things come to mind. Um, one is, uh, it is important to some degree to kind of utilize what resonates with you. You know, mm-hmm. certain, we all, uh, the main thing is that we we're going on a self-discovery path, but the, the, the problem that we can come up against is that uh, if we don't have like a coach or a mentor to know how to get our attention out of our head, mm. then uh, we could be going in the wrong direction. You know, so, for example, uh, what, you were, what you were describing is uh, in the book emphasized the importance of developing the witness or the observer of our thoughts. Okay, so we could do mental training just by uh, from think from the perspective of thinking. So we're thinking like, well, you know, um, negative thoughts really doesn't give me the results I want. I, I don't really don't like the way it makes me feel. So I'm just going to constantly shift to have positive thoughts, you know, and so we do our best to think positively and optimistically. And and that's our mental training program. In reality, if we can find a way to unhook thinking from our awareness of it, then we can observe the negative thoughts, the positive thoughts, and 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 then from a more objective perspective, take action. Mm -hmm. So we have a tool, there's a couple of things that we can do there. One is more experiential and one is more uh, uh, intellectual. When we create an outcome, we have our our students ask themselves two questions, like, uh, what did I do well that helped me, you know, to perform to to that level? And then what what do I want to change? What do I need to learn and do differently? So those questions, first of all, they're questions, so they engage the curiosity to answer, but they also separate us from uh, the outcome. So we feel less like a failure and, mm-hmm. and less subjective as, as a, a failure of that outcome and more objective for the information that it gave us. Uh, so that's a, a nice uh, tool that we can use to kind of dissect an outcome better. Uh, a daily practice though that, that I use a lot and, and we teach is it's more like what you were mentioning. It, it's it's not specifically a meditation or a walking meditation, but it's like that. It's where it, I have, you know, a certain morning routine around a little bit of meditation, a little Tai Chi, reading, you know, and stuff like that. But I also set an intention in the morning to uh, keep my attention you might say, focus double-arrowed inwardly toward maintaining an expanded body, like I focus on breathing, relaxing, and maintaining proper posture. And externally toward what we call an observant mind, you know, so I can have my attention instead of engaged in thinking, I have it engaged in what I can feel like on my connection to the world around me through my skin, what I can hear and what I can see. So. Uh, an important thing for your listeners to know is that uh, the body is always in the present moment. It can't be in the past or future. But the mind, when it's engaged in thinking, it it has to be engaged in thinking about the past or thinking about the future. So it's not in the present moment. It's in the present moment, but it's it's directing attention out of the present moment. Okay? So how do you get the your mind in the present moment while you engage your attention and what you can feel, hear and see and what you can feel inside your body. So it's not like we uh, don't do thinking all day long, but we do it more intentionally. Uh, as a, as a foundation, we have this double arid awareness that allows us to be more, you might say awake and not lost in thought mm-hmm. and alert to our, our internal and external surroundings.
0: Is is that kind of awareness, like you mentioned thinking largely being about the past and the future, is that kind of a awareness less, it's, it's, it's difficult to describe, but like less thinking in a way and more like, like less assigning meaning to things and more just kind of paying attention to what is, I, I know I'm not explaining that well, but like, is it something where it's, it's less of a deliberate thought in a way, just a state of more of a clear mind where you're just kind of experiencing things?
1: Yeah, it's not a thought at all. Yeah, okay. Okay. Uh, Now, there's a caveat there. It's like uh, our brain's job is to think. And believe me, it's thinking all the time. (laughs) But the point is, what we can control is where we choose to focus our attention. Okay? So what I just described about this... uh, Expanded body and observant mind is we're choosing to focus our attention in the body and in the senses instead of in thinking. So when I when I look at you, I'm not thinking like why do you, why did you choose those kinds of glasses, Jake, or you know, your particular kind of haircut. I'm not judging and thinking about uh, what I'm seeing. I'm just uh, seeing color and shape and uh, uh, shadow and light. Uh, I'm feeling the sensations. I'm hearing sounds. So my attention is is engaged in my senses, which is very different than thought.
0: What physical elements do you think help with that? Like you mentioned breathing and posture. I'm I'm very interested in the the connection between those things and how you very much can get yourself into... That kind of a state in the way that you're breathing. Um, I've focused less on posture. What, what, what's the um, the importance of that that you found
1: uh, of posture or, or uh, at both least... both. Po- both posture and yeah. breathing? Yeah. Well, uh, an, an interesting thing to keep in mind is uh, uh, we have stress in our lives, right? In our lives, you know, that's that's going to be uh, ongoing. And our natural reaction to stress is contraction. Okay, so I'm gonna contract my posture, pull my neck into my shoulders, maybe not that much, you know, but there's gonna be a contraction. The muscles gonna tense a little bit. Uh, My posture is gonna get a little more concave. I'm gonna get tunnel vision. So, and it's usually subtle. And it's usually unconscious, you know, so what, when we're setting an intention in the morning to be, have an expanded body and an observant mind, you know, having our attention engaged this way, uh, we're reminding ourselves all through the day, like, uh, I'll see how long I go before I I say, I recognize saying, okay, I'm alert uh, awake, alert, awake, alert. You know, and it might be an hour between those times. But but every time I remember to be awake and alert, I shift in the opposite direction of what uh, is the natural contractive tendency. And that's important because that's just a sort of a physical manifestation of uh, a resistance to stress. It's mm-hmm. a defensive measure, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Which it can be important to be de- defend ourselves, but a lot of times it's just unconscious. And, and if we're expanded and our attention is engaged, what's going on internally? What's going on externally? Are there any threats? Do I need to pay? What do I need to pay attention to here? We're engaging in the world in what's real instead of like being lost in thought and contractive and then just reacting to what we our, our imaginations of what's going on.
0: So you can use awareness of your physical state and how tense you are, you can use that as a signal to know when you're being less, less observant, and I guess more caught up in thoughts and emotions like, and then on the other hand, you can kind of like use the physical state in relaxing that tension to get you back into a better mental state rather than trying to control the mind with the mind.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, we we don't want to control the mind with the mind. We want to control the mind with awareness. You know, that observer, that witness position. Because, uh, like I said, like I catch myself being lost in thought all through the day. And I catch myself being lost in thought all during the day. That's important. We have to catch ourselves so we can get back to that observer position, which is our awareness of what's going on.
0: You, you mentioned, um, th- that, that you use a label. Did you say awake and aware? Is that, is that something that like, when you'll notice, I, I've heard people with talk about with meditation, like when they catch their mind wandering, they'll use a label, like thinking that like snaps them out mm-hmm. of it. Do, do you, do you, do you use something like that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I use awake and alert.
0: Cool. You oh, know? Awake, and alert, yeah.
1: <clears throat> awake meaning that, uh, my attention isn't lost in thought. I'm awake to the present moment, what's going on. And alert is I have my attention, this double arrowed in expanded body and observant mind so I can be alert to my internal and external surroundings. Yeah. Um, And an interesting thing with this that's kind of tied to, you know, the warrior is that, and I can't remember if Yagamuna mentioned this or not, but it seemed like I... Got some idea about this from him, but it's uh, be alert as a warrior in enemy territory. You know, so if you think about you know a soldier, or a warrior in enemy territory, they're friggin' paying attention, right? You know, they're they're looking to see if there's any movement, they're listening, you know, for any people move around in in the environment, uh, and so. That sounds like like we're we're trying to scare ourselves, you know, uh, imagining that we're going through our day always in enemy territory. Uh, But we can use that as an example of just being alert. Like if if we were to just look into a scene and we're just looking casually, our attention is going to, our alertness and our attention is going to be very different than if we know that there's a threat out there. If we know there's a threat out there, then our our alertness is kind of heightened. And that's, uh, if we can find a balance where we're not, we're doing that in a way that's helpful, mm-hmm. and not just trying to scare ourselves. You know that there's going to be, you know, someone that hurt us. You know around the next corner, then that can be being alert awake and alert can mean a lot more than than just uh having our attention focused in our our senses
0: yeah along those the the lines of awareness helping us be recognize our ego and thoughts that are in line with our ego you talk about self-worth and shifting from external measures of self-worth to internal measures um with sports in, in my experience it seems like it's it's very easy to get caught up in external measures because they're so clearly easy to quantify. You have, you know, mm. di- did we beat whoever what's our um what's our record? Where am I on this ranking list? It's like all of these are comparative measures that that you use to I guess like rank you in the hierarchy of the sport. It seems like some of that is because they're so easy to to quantify and they're so clear that it's just it's so easy to attach to and see. D- do you have ways of better clarifying internal metrics like you talk about a focus on learning and growth. Do you have ways of, of clarifying those more easily so that it's not so so that we can resist that pull towards the very easy to see external metrics.
1: Yeah. When you when you mention external metric, right? That uh, brings to mind, well, there could be an internal metric also, right? Well what would that be? Well When we think about our worth, our self-worth, we have to kind of ask, like, why would we even wonder if we have to be worthy? Why do we even have to define that? Well, it's because we have this external orientation where we're comparing ourselves to other people. On an internal perspective, uh, self-worth is kind of a non-issue. That's interesting. I exist you exist therefore i am and you you are you know so we can see each other as equals because on it, from an internal perspective we're we're alive we're we have this foundation of awareness and we have different you know bodies and skills and experiences that allow us to do different things in the world but uh, i can focus on doing the best i can with what i've got and you can focus on the best you can with what you've got so uh, so bringing it more to an internal perspective like that tends to create, uh, well, cause self worth to be a non issue, get us to compare less, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and and help us just focus on doing the best we can, you know, with what we've got. You know, an interesting thing in in the, you might say, the warrior literature is, uh, the ego tends to want to stand on a throne of self-importance and personal history. You know, so Mm. for me, for example, my personal history is all of these climbs that I did, you know, and I feel important because of that. You know, and so that's, as as you can imagine, that's an external way of understanding who I am and my worthiness. And this is what the ego does. It's constantly looking to... our our external achievements or lack thereof to feel important or not important. When in reality, when we're oriented that way, it makes us feel like victims. It makes us feel like victims to the external situation. In climbing, if I succeed, I feel important and good about myself. If I fail, the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. But if I see myself more as, from an internal perspective, uh, not having to measure myself against someone else, then I can have an effort and then I can be curious about that outcome, which is like what you were mentioning, like being more learning-based oriented. Uh, but I think it just, it shifts us toward when we have this more internal way of understanding that self-worth is not a, not something I need to compare. Uh, it automatically positions me for being curious about learning from the outcomes I create.
0: So what, what what I was what I was hitting at originally was not even the right approach because it was still clinging to the idea of self-worth when really you can just kind of drop the concept because that's that, that's more related to other people.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, one thing that's important, Jake, is that. Uh... The external world that we live in, where we have these tendency to compare, is real. Like we we're participating in it. So uh, it's not that we're we can all of a sudden just say, "Oh, I'm just going to have an internal perspective, and you know, self worth is not an issue, no problem."
0: Sure.
1: You know, it it takes a long time to to get more comfortable with that way of being. Uh, and if we If we know that, um, you know, comparing ourselves to others and, and feeling worthy based on that is limiting, if we can be conscious of that, here's the, the consciousness comes into Mm -hmm. play again, the awareness, then we can start doing, making actions, you know, to move us in a more helpful direction, uh, and and as we're moving there, you know, there's nothing wrong with comparing ourselves to other people as a metric for what's possible. Like we yeah. we look at uh, athletics and the Olympics all the time to see what's possible for us and that can inspire us to do what we want to do. It's not that we never do the comparison, but we don't base our self worth on it.
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, do you think that? that the ego and and self-worth based on those kind of comparisons well th- does does the self-worth on those based on those kind of comparisons feed into the ego which can kind of make us make us more defensive and you you talk about the the principle of responsibility in the book and how it's so easy for us to lie to ourselves is is getting too wrapped up with those kinds of social comparisons does that put our ego on more high defense, which would make us more likely to to be less honest with ourselves and take less responsibility?
1: Uh, Bingo, right? You know, it's like um, the ego defines itself by external achievements and roles. And like, who am I? Well, I make this much money. I'm a mental training coach. You know, I've got this past history of climbing relationships that's our ego defines and when those things get threatened we get defensive because mm. it's it's like a ta- it's like an attack on us right yeah you know so uh so yes it's like uh it can feel like an attack and of course we're going to do what we can to protect ourselves how do we protect ourselves well we one of the one of the basic ways is we don't accept responsibility for whatever that event was or is. Uh, so that's where we can make excuses like, well, you know, I haven't been training that much. That's why I failed on the climb. Or blame other people for the outcomes. Why? Because it's easier. It's easier to do that than accept responsibility because it's stressful to own up to it, uh, where it's easier to uh, have someone else like uh, take the blame for what happened into, into the, in the effort.
0: Yeah. The, the, the responsibility piece is in line with that fundamental awareness that you talked about in the beginning with being more aware of, um, some of the thoughts and that, that are, you know, coming out of ego. There's that famous Feynman quote about how the, the easiest person to fool is yourself. How do you have methods for, because it's it's so easy to do it's so easy to just quickly instinctually lie and say that it's not your fault or you know try to play victim with things that that you could be taking responsibility for Do do you have ways of um deliberately pointing out when you're doing that and being able to shift that perspective into like like what could i have done to make that better
1: yes i think so um it is really easy to kind of trick ourselves or be unaware of what's going on. It's like, we think we know ourselves and then in a lot of instances, our friends know us better than we do because they, they see behaviors that we're we're to so close to, we don't really see them as objectively as other people. Yeah. Uh, but uh, a few things happen, it's like, <clears throat> And it still comes back to this ability to be the observer of our, our thoughts, right? So if we can observe that we're having these ego thoughts and and we identify them as uh, thoughts that are trying to make us feel more important or good about ourselves or bad about ourselves, uh, we can start recognizing when we have those kinds of thoughts and then we can pause and, and Redirect our attention toward, uh, what did I do well? What do I still need to learn from this particular event? You know, so, uh, and I found that it happens kind of in progressions. Like, first of all, I'm unconscious. Like, I'm all reactive to the thoughts and don't even know that I'm reacting. You know, blaming someone else, for example. Number two, I'm blaming someone else and I'm aware. Like, Arnie, you shouldn't be doing this, but I can't stop it. And then with more practice, I'm aware that I'm doing it and I'm doing it for a little bit. And then I can say, wait a minute, pause and then redirect. And then finally, you get to where I'm not reactive at all.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I I thought the, the point of giving versus receiving was very interesting, especially for something like an athletic pursuit. It seems like the goals are, are often, you know, like me achieving something which is it's easy to think of like me gaining something like me getting better at the thing me achieving whatever the goal is and at at least for me growing up it seemed like it was easy for that to to be through the terms of receiving how how do you shift that perspective and does that affect the kind of goals that you set to more of like what can i give to this pursuit to these people around me
1: Yeah, so um, I think for very unconscious and uh, survival reasons, we have this receiving kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. Like, well, if I need to survive, I'm going to need you know shelter and food and money, and, and so so it's it's very natural to be focused on receiving what you need. Like, I need this obviously to survive, you know, but. Uh, And it's usually unconscious, right? We just, it's our natural comfort motivation for wanting to survive manifesting itself, okay? Mm -hmm. So if we bring some consciousness to it, we say like, I want to achieve that climb or that goal. Then we start realizing that, well, it's going to take some effort, you know? Okay, I need to plan. I need to buy some gear. That costs money. That hurts, you know? Uh, I'm going to need to train, my mind and my body, you know, to be able to accomplish it. I need to learn how to climb the technique. And so we start, if we can start focusing on what we need to give to uh, accomplishing a goal, then it changes where our fo- our focus is, right? Uh, now, having said that, there's also a balance, okay? It's like we can't just be giving focus, we also need to be receiving focus. And a perfect example for that is when we're climbing, we need to stop to receive, you know, receive more energy by recovering, shaking out, and 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 then when we start climbing again, then we can give that energy to it. So the same thing like uh, during the day, we we're receiving energy when we're sleeping, and then we give energy when we're awake. So there is a cycle there. It's just that when we want to accomplish something, we need to make sure we're in that mindset of giving.
0: Yes. And with with, uh, you mentioning receiving energy and information and things while you're on the climb, you you write about that in the chapter on listening. Um, What's that balance like between doing the planning before and outlining things versus allowing yourself to kind of go outside of those lines when need be, because there's gonna be holes in your plan that you didn't account for. What's that balance like between planning and spontaneity as as you're doing the climb?
1: Yeah, in, in climbing, um, I just uh, frame it a little bit for your viewers and listeners. There, there are two types of climbing, basically. There's uh, what we call on-site where you go to a particular climb, and you've never been there before, and, and you're climbing it for the first time. So obviously, there are going to be a lot of unknowns. And then there's something we call a red point, where we're, we've been on the climb, let's say, many times, and we know a lot about it. You know, We have a very specific plan about exactly where we're going to rest, and, and even a very sequence of moves that we make. So there's two very different plans that we have for that. But uh, for living life, it's a lot of it's on-site. You know, it's like mm-hmm. every day is different and we don't know what to expect. Yeah. So uh, I think what's important is that uh, we, we need to have a goal so we know where we're going. But then we need to be flexible in how we get there. So we can have a plan. Like I, I can be at a, at a stopping point on a climb and I look up something I've never been on before, and I can see some stuff, right? I can see, well, looks like I might be able to do a sequence in this way, uh, get a little subtle rest there, and then I can keep going and I get to the next stopping point. Uh, But then when I engage, I engage knowing that it's going to be somewhat wrong or maybe a lot wrong. So I go into it making sure that I remain adaptable. And, And how many times do... Do we go through life, you know, thinking a day is going to be in a a certain way and, you know, it has all kinds of left and right turns along the way that we didn't anticipate. Mm -hmm. So we need to be able to recognize when we're in kind of unknown territory, the unexpected, and remain curious there to be adaptable.
0: You you mentioned in the book contingency planning, which my understanding is that you're specifically looking for things that might go wrong or holes in your plan that, that you might not be expecting. For me in, in various things, the few times that I've implemented that, cause I haven't been nearly as diligent with that as I think would be helpful. it it's, it seems like, 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 like that's been a very beneficial thing to do. Is, is that something that, that you do with climbs to make, make sure that, that you can, um, kind of account for the fact that often like the beginning plans are going to have quite a bit of holes, quite a bit of holes in them that, that you're not recognizing.
1: Uh yes I I do uh and it can manifest itself in a couple of ways or maybe s- several ways but one is you know you you look up and you're uh you have one way that uh, that kind of resonates or that you recognize first like like based on like my own experiences my preference for how I climb I look up and I see certain uh, holes in certain orientations that say, oh, I'm going to climb it this way. Uh, but then I can create contingency plans like, okay, if that hole is not very positive, then I might need to do it in a different way. So so we can have, you know, two or three different contingency plans like that. Uh, and we also need to have a contingency plan to uh, be able to climb up a few moves and then back down to a rest stance so that we can get uh, that we call it probing so we can probe up into a sequence to see what that experience is like What what kind of information are we actually gathering there uh come back down and then uh, that might give us enough information where we feel like we can uh commit from that known you know through to the next stopping point you know even if it's the, the plan uh isn't exactly right and we're like making it up as we go uh
0: i think there's the last chapter i believe before um the experiences or not experiences the, the exercises chapter um, you talk about love based versus fear-based motivation and i i think that was a really important point do you, do you want to go over as what what you mean by that and why that's so important for um the long-term sustainability and um, I, I guess, just our effectiveness in, in whatever it is that we're trying to do?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, first of all, it's important, I guess, for your viewers to know that I wrote The Rock Warrior's Way in 2003, so it's 20 years ago, and I've, I've learned a few things since then. So uh, one thing I learned is that uh, it's not really a choice between fear-based motivation and love-based motivation. Um we, we want, uh, but basically the contrast is fear-based motivation is contractive, keeping us from engaging. Love-based motivation is engaging. It, it takes us into distress in a way that we can, we focus on what we love about engaging that activity. Uh, and uh, having, knowing that, it's also important to realize that fear is not bad. You know, fear is an, an important emotion that wants to keep us safe. Uh, so, in in the the training that we do, we emphasize that there's no such thing as an irrational fear. You know, all fears are important to pay attention to and work through because that's we learn when we work through the particular fears instead of trying to push them away or uh, ignore them. They'll just come back stronger. So it's important to, uh, you might say, honor the fears. What information are they trying to tell us that uh, is wanting to keep us in our comfort zone and not engage the stress? And when we investigate it that way, some things we find out are illusory. You know, I'm I'm afraid of failing. It says, well, if I uh, if my ego is tied to the outcome the external event and I'm afraid of failing because I then everybody will see that I couldn't do it uh, I can make a conscious choice that this is not the way I want to be so I can find little ways to engage it to be to engage it lovingly you might say motivated toward loving the engagement learn from it uh, and then diminish the the impact of the fear based motivation
0: yeah that's that's interesting that you said that that there's no irrational fears because often you'll hear people say that so to you is it is it more that that it, the fears aren't irrational because they have a reason but sometimes when you dig deeper the reason's not very good so you can kind of just drop it
1: um, actually you know calling it that there actually are irrational fears but uh that doesn't make them not valid, okay? They're irrational because we can't put rationality to it. We can't use a logical brain to uh, decide, well, I should be afraid of this or I shouldn't be afraid of that. You know, I mean, a simple example is when you're climbing, you know, if you're on vertical or slightly overhanging terrain with no obstacles, some climbers will say that it's, irra- it's an irrational fear to be afraid of falling in that kind of a situation because you're just going to obviously fall into air. It makes sense. It makes sense to the rational, logical brain. Uh, but there's a reason why you're afraid. What's the reason? Lack of experience. Okay, lack of experience, falling, even in what seems like a benign falling situation. So, two things can happen when we ignore irrational fears. One is, we hurt ourselves anyway, physically. How could you hurt yourself falling into air, you know, when you're on overhanging terrain? Well, I'll tell you how. Uh, We think we know that we're, we think, that we're just gonna fall straight down. But there's no such thing as straight lines in nature. You know, things work in arcs. So when we fall, there's a little bit of outward momentum as we detach from the wall and we create an arc that swings us into the wall. Mm -hmm. And especially if we don't get the proper catch from our belayer, we can come in and injure ourselves. Uh, So we can hurt ourselves physically. Number two, we can hurt ourselves mentally. We can traumatize ourselves. We've had students that uh, have fallen into air, not get physically hurt, but it's it's they got scared so much that they didn't want to go climbing again. You know, so that's an injury, right? That's an that's an injury also. Uh, so it's it's much better we found, you know, to find an incremental approach to anything that you lack experience with, anything that is fearful, just find an incremental approach to uh, to learn about that and diminish the fear. So what, what's really cool that what happens when we do that is, you know, as we're, let's just say, we're going into the unknown this way. Uh, every decision we make has consequences. Right? In life or in climbing. We make a decision to go up. Well, the consequence in climbing is you fall. If you, if you make that decision poorly. Uh, so, if we practice falling as we're incrementing into uh, making decisions about risk, then we're learning experientially about the consequence of those risk decisions. And that's really important because then we have a better metric for making risk decisions. We're basing it on our experience with the consequences. You mm-hmm. know, in in life we need to make mistakes. It's not like it'd be a nice idea. No, learning requires mistakes, you know, so in a sense, that's like, that's a fall in climbing. Like when we make mistakes, we understand the consequences more of the decisions that we're making, you know, so um, so that's a, a, a much better way of understanding how we need to learn and how we need to deal with fears than just labeling some fears irrational and trying to suppress them.
0: So, gaining more context into the consequences of making certain mistakes does that increase the rationality of the fears? Because you're better better able to outline them and understand what the fear actually is.
1: Uh, It doesn't increase the rationality. I mean, it uh, you embody it. Okay, when when we think about, let's say, our our comfort zone, uh, if. What am I comfortable climbing? What grade? Well, let's say it's 5.11. You know, it's a climbing grade. Uh, how do I know I can climb 5.11? Well, because I've experienced enough of 5.11 climbs to know that I can do it comfortably. Uh, does that make it rational? No, it, it may, I, I feel it in my body as I engage in uh, the climbing activity and and falling is the same way it's like whatever the consequence is uh if i experience what it's like uh i embody more of what that is you know so that uh, yeah it, it's not uh it's not a rational process so in, in fact uh it maybe i can draw draw a little diagram here uh, sure. If if you look at the like your, your comfort zone like this, right? Uh-huh. What's in here again is like experiential knowledge. Okay. So, it, again, if I've climbed the grade of five eleven, then I've ex—that's my expansion of intellectual. No- I mean, of experiential knowledge. Now the next grade, five twelve, is out here. I know a little bit about it, but it's unknown. Mm-hmm. So I have some. I don't have experience yet with this. Uh, so it's I maybe have some rational ideas about it. Like, well, you know, it's just a little, the holes are just a little smaller. It's a little more sustained climbing, a little harder. I have some rational and intellectual ideas about it. But until I, you know, take action and go out there and experience it. I'm not going to know it. So it's it's not a matter of making the fears more rational. It's that if I take that action, I expand my comfort zone to where now I've embodied, you know, a, a wider um, understanding of what I'm capable of doing. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So 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 you're saying that it's it it makes the fears. Like, like you're not thinking about them as much, you're like, you're, like you're you're out of your head more.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, we have to when when we use phrases like "out of your head," we need to be we need to know what we mean by that. And and in mental training, we always talk about attention. So, and that's what I think you mean. Is like. We're yeah. not in our head. Our attention isn't in our head because it's more purposefully directed toward what needs attention. And what needs attention when we're climbing is our bodies. You know, engaging in climbing movement, breathing, relaxing, things like that. Or when we stop, you know, attention can go into the head, you know, so that we can do critical thinking about that next section. So it's yeah. much more purposefully directed um, Rather than I guess thinking of uh, framing it in that we're not thinking about the fear as much.
0: Okay, it's kind of
1: like uh, what what we focus on expands. So everything that we're teaching in the training is uh, we actually we teach five processes for focusing attention. You know, at stopping points, for example, we have a resting process, a thinking process, and a decision-making process. And then we have a moving process when we're climbing. We have a falling process when we fall. That's it. you know. And each one of those has very specific elements for focusing your attention. So so you can be really intentional with where you're directing your attention. And then when it's directed there, that's what's likely to expand as opposed to it being directed toward a fear.
0: Hmm. That makes sense. Yes. Yeah, so, so you talked about it's, it's been a while since you wrote the book and did the original course. What are some of the things since then that that you've shifted your perspective on? Maybe maybe tweaks that you've made. Are, are there adjustments to some of the some of the main principles that that you would like to to point out since then? Uh,
1: yes, I mean, um, the one where you're unhooking thinking from our awareness, that's been represented in worry's way as developing this witness or observer position uh, yeah. it's kind of refined that more over time but uh, another one that maybe wasn't as fleshed out back then is separating identity from outcome and I think it, it was in worry's way to some degree like we're talking about the ego there and things uh, but I, uh, and again like uh, flesh that out more since that book, particularly around, like I mentioned earlier, around those two questions that we can ask ourselves, but what I did well, what I still need to learn as a way to be more objective and uh, instead of tying our identity to an outcome and feeling good or bad about ourselves because of that. I guess uh, one thing that uh, one really foundational thing that is different is uh, a both-and understanding of reality. Like, uh, again, there are elements of that in, you know, the material uh, back when Rock Warrior's Way was published. Uh, But I've got a a much better understanding of it now. Like, uh, and it's, well, I guess that's uh, just a a sliver of that truth. So uh, what do I mean by a both-and understanding of reality? Well, Uh, The simplest example is looking at the breath, the breath cycle, okay? So we we both need the inhale and the exhale, right? Which one do you like better? You need both, right? So you're not going to choose. You you choose to inhale and forget about the exhale, uh, you know, you're not going to be around very long, right? (laughs) So do you want night or day? Well we need both, okay? so. Let's move on. So it's important to accept that there's this both and foundation for reality. Uh, In climbing, it's stop, move. Both stopping and moving. Now, number two is an either or choice. Okay. You either commit to the inhale or you commit to the exhale. You know, like completely. If if you commit to both inhale and exhale, you're not going to do either of them very well, right? Same in climbing. If you commit to stopping and moving, you're going to be kind of like in between and not be effective. You're not going to move anywhere and you're not going to recover energy. So it's important to choose either one part of that cycle or the other. Mm. And number three, is that as we're in one part of the cycle, inhaling for example, it becomes inevitable that you have to cycle into the other part of it, the exhale. Like that the more I inhale, the more the need to exhale manifests itself until I exhale and vice versa. The same happens in uh, climbing. You know, the longer I stay at a, a resting point, I can stay there to recover energy, but then I feel refreshed and then I can go. But then as I'm going, I'm using up my energy and I'm going to need to cycle back into stopping and resting. And of course, the same thing between being you know, active during the day and sleeping at night. It's not like we we just like, okay, go to sleep, I'm sleeping, I wake up. No, you're you're recovering more and more You know, a a four hour night's sleep is not quite as much as a six hour, but a six hour is better, you know, and and it's eight hours better than a six. So it's it's cumulative, right? And it's a Mm -hmm. self perpetuating cycle. Well, how does that help us? We can see how that would help us in climbing. We need to cycle in a timely manner between recovering energy and applying energy. But it's the same thing in life, right? We we can be out of balance with this foundational way of understanding reality, because we're striving for that career or something, you know, and we're and we're out of balance between our work life and our personal life, uh, between you know spending time with family or activities like climbing, uh, and uh, you know we get out of balance that way. So uh, this is something. Uh, that I've really been focusing a lot in my life is like, have I, am I living this truth, you know, well, and I've gotten better and it, and there's going to be obviously times when we're out of balance some, you know, where I might have to work more, you know, for a short few days, but then I can, uh, spend more time, you know, for the next few days, you know, on personal things.
0: Do you find that helps you with, with making decisions in the, in the moment of like, I I know like the harder I push now, like the more I'm going to need to like pull back later. So like, like that kind of keeps you from, from burnout, from thinking like I can just push constantly, like without thinking about the fact that like, I know I'm going to need to recover from this. So it's like it's like it like in the moment you you make less impulsive decisions, I guess, and understand that like like whichever end of the poll I'm going for right now like i am gonna have to have a proportionate acceptance of the other side at some point
1: uh yes, I mean uh, the thing to to realize is I think is it's not optional, yeah. Like the world works this way, you know. Our our bodies work this way, you know. Optimal climbing works that way, you know. And and we can we can try to circumvent it. You know, if I just really work hard, you know, then I'll be able to get all of this stuff, and then everything will be okay. Well, we might burn out, like you said. Because uh, we we tend to lose interest with something if we don't get enough rest or don't have enough balance, uh, and and so the the thing is we can we can make a conscious choice that okay for right now I'm, I need to focus on work for the next three days. It's going to be out of balance with my personal life, and. At the end of these three days, I'm going to make another conscious choice in the opposite direction. So a lot of it, I think, is more consciousness around what we're choosing to do and knowing that we're making that choice.
0: Yeah. Yeah, So we talked before we started recording about how you've had the idea of extending um, these principles in this training to more of a broad audience. how much has that altered the way that that you think about the program did the principles stay the same like like you mentioned this this kind of yin and yang um development that that you've added over time over the over the 20 years since you've wrote this um what what's it been like transitioning these ideas to something that that you think applies more broadly rather than being um specific to climate
1: Uh, well um, one thing that comes to mind is uh, the material has always been relevant beyond climbing yeah uh, I've I've gotten you know numerous people uh, reaching out to me after reading Rock Worry's Way and said oh, it help, helps me in my climbing but really I'm applying it more to life so uh, the I want the I wanted the material and, and I want the future of the material to be something that's that's more broad, you know, that's not just pigeonholed toward you know, athletic performance uh, to achieve some win. That's important, uh, and I think in a broader context, uh, I want the material to be able to be applied to create a more peaceful, effective, engaging, meaningful life. You know, so it's always had those kernels, uh, and you know, like we've been talking uh, over the last twenty years, I've learned more things that I want to include in the the book that I'm currently working on for the general public. You know, and and part of it is uh, I'm actually in in process right now of uh, developing my internal team to take on the climbing business more like the climbing instruction so that I can focus more on uh, training in the non-climbing arena and Mm -hmm. understanding the material in a non-climbing arena, like in nature, for example, or in, in regular life activities.
0: So there's the book and you're working on the new one, which when's that supposed to come out?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, um, I finished the first draft of it two and a half years ago and been distracted, cool. you know, for um, working on the internal team since then. But uh, it might be a couple of years, um, cool. might be sooner, but I'm not sure. Generally, it takes about a couple of years, you know, to, to publish a yeah. book. Cool.
0: Yeah. So, So there's the original book, which... Um, you know, even with, with whatever tweaks are made, I I do think is very helpful and and applies broadly, which is why, um, I was interested in having this conversation with you. Um, in in the meantime for that, that new one coming out along with the book, do you have any other, um, resources or books that, that you would recommend people checking out if they, if they want to learn more about this kind of philosophy?
1: Hmm. Yeah, what, I mean, one thing that I I've done over the years is like really read and researched widely, you know, mm-hmm. because I I wanted to you know find I wanted to find some foundational themes or truths, you might say, of uh, that you can apply not just in climbing but more broadly, just to to live a more you know effective life and the warrior philosophy, you know really pointed me in that direction. Um, I mean, people could check out the Castaneda books. They could check out Dan Millman's book, like Way of the Peaceful Warrior. Uh, they could check out, you know, the Book of Five Rings with uh, Miyamoto Masashi or uh, The Life-Giving Sword with uh, Yago Munonori. Uh They could check out other more current authors like Tara Brock, you know, with Radical Honesty and and Radical Acceptance or Brene Brown's work, you know. It's all about, like, the importance of being, the the strength and vulnerability and and things like that. Um, Yeah. What else? Uh, I mean, uh, even books like Grit, you know, and Angela Duckworth, you know, is... There are a lot of books that are really give you like really tangible practices for understanding certain concepts and the books I've listed are, are a lot of them do that. I have to look at my uh library behind and just see what else comes to mind but those those are some that come to mind
0: oh yeah so the the book I'll have um linked in the description to uh, Amazon or your website, um, is, is the, is the website the best place that people can find you and and learn more about your work?
1: Yes. Uh, warriors com, Um, and I have two books, uh, the rock warriors way. And then the second one is the espresso lessons, which is, uh, lessons from the rock warriors way. It's more practical treatment of the material, but on my website, uh, uh, you, you can't buy the books on my website but there are links for the paperback books like on Amazon or from um or, or audiobooks or ebooks that uh you can click on the links to to order them at your your preferred place.
0: Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Um I really appreciate mm-hmm. it. I I think um the the book was a very interesting take on of sports psychology and philosophy, and I'm 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 interested in seeing how you, um, you know, whether it be a couple of years or or whatever the timeline is, um, I'm I'm interested in seeing how you expand that to um, more broader purposes in life. So thanks a lot, um, and I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, you're welcome, Jake, and it'd be fun to be on here again when it when the book comes out, so we can <laughs> yeah we can share that with everybody. So I appreciate cool. you inviting me. Thanks.